0: Hello, this is Derek Thorne here, and myself and the team are here in Vienna at the European Society of Cardiology Congress for 2007. In this programme, a roundup of some of the top stories from Sunday, including news on drug eluting stents and a large survey that sheds light on the quality of risk factor management for coronary patients. First, though, the advanced study has demonstrated that lowering blood pressure in patients with diabetes reduces mortality. Investigators randomised 11,000 patients to receive either a combination of perindopril and indapamide or a placebo and saw a 14% reduction in all-cause mortality. This is the first study looking into prevention of diabetic complications through lowering blood pressure. Sarah Maxwell spoke with study author Stephen McMahon after his presentation and asked him for the details.
1: This was a randomised trial. Uh, of a fixed dose of two blood pressure-lowering drugs, perindopril and endapamide, in low dose in a single tablet versus placebo. And it was added to whatever other treatment that the diabetic patients in the study were receiving. So the vast majority of them were receiving treatment for glucose control. The large majority were also receiving some other sort of blood pressure-lowering therapy. So the benefits that we've seen, or the effects that we've seen, are additional to all of those other treatments.
2: What impact did you see in terms of blood pressure lowering in this randomization?
1: Well, we lowered blood pressure by about 6 millimetres of mercury systolic and we reduced the risk of the most important complication of diabetes, which is death from cardiovascular disease, by 18%. Um, so a very modest reduction in blood pressure, but a remarkably large reduction in deaths. What additional benefits did you see for these patients? Well, in addition to the reduction in deaths, we also saw a 14% reduction in heart disease and a 20% reduction in renal disease.
2: Was that benefit seen for hypertensive and non-hypertensive patients?
1: Yes, the benefits were seen for both those with and without high blood pressure. It was also seen for patients receiving um, background treatment with other blood pressure-lowering drugs, with cholesterol-lowering drugs, and also with aspirin. So the benefits appeared to be present in every major subgroup that we looked at.
2: How well tolerated was this combination for the patient group?
1: Well, the tolerability was excellent. In fact, there were no more withdrawals from active therapy than there were from placebo. So in terms of um, uh, side effects leading to uh, treatment withdrawal, there was no difference between the groups. Are the
2: results here enough to suggest that this should fit into current practices?
1: Yes, I think that the results are strong enough to indicate that we need to move from uh, just treating people with high blood pressure uh, to considering everyone with diabetes, irrespective of the level of blood pressure, uh, for blood pressure-lowering treatment. And what's the clinical bottom line here for the practising community? I think the bottom line is that All patients with diabetes, irrespective of their blood pressure level, should be reviewed and considered for treatment with this uh, low-dose fixed combination.
0: That was Stephen McMahon from the University of Sydney in Australia. And Peter Goodwin spoke with Raymond Gibbons after the presentation and asked him what he made of the study.
3: I think it's a critically important study that provides yet further evidence for existing guidelines that emphasize the importance of blood pressure control in diabetics and demonstrate that there is a mortality benefit in better controlling blood pressure. Physicians ought not to lose sight of the benefit of that as they work on controlling glucose in diabetics. We need to do a better job of controlling blood pressure.
2: Now these are the agents use of perindopril and indapamide. Could you use any diuretic and any ACE inhibitor?
3: In the balance of risk versus benefit, one needs to look at the individual drugs which were used in this trial. On the other hand, one hopes that the effect on blood pressure that they saw and, and its association with an improvement in mortality is generalizable to other agents, but we don't know that for certain. And the
2: take-home message for doctors here?
3: The take-home message is very clear. Do not neglect blood pressure in your diabetic patients. There is a real benefit in survival in doing a better job of getting them to the goal blood pressure of 130 over 80.
0: That was Raymond Gibbons, president of the American Heart Association, and he's from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Results from a series of large European surveys have shown that among the coronary patients studied, smoking prevalence hasn't changed over the last 12 years, and obesity has gone up. This seems to show that management of lifestyle and risk factors for these patients may not be good enough, but there may also be a political message here. The investigators used three Euro Aspire surveys to obtain this data, and the analysis included over 8,000 patients from nine countries.
4: With more, here's David Wood from Charing Cross Hospital in London. Over this 12-year period, we see adverse lifestyle trends. No change in the prevalence of smoking overall, about a fifth of patients smoking cigarettes. Uh, But underneath that figure, we see an increase in smoking in younger patients, uh, below the age of 50, and especially women. A real increase, a substantial increase, in fact, in the prevalence of obesity and central obesity and uh, together with that uh, a real increase in the prevalence of of diabetes. So um, important adverse lifestyle trends which are impacting upon the the management of other risk factors and in terms of the other risk factors um, blood pressure management has not changed at all over this period Uh, more than half of these patients are still not controlled to target but a real improvement in terms of lipid management and now a majority of patients are below the cholesterol target of uh, less than 4.5 millimoles per litre but that still leaves about 40% of patients uh, who have yet to achieve this target so there is more work to be done there. And in terms of diabetes um, there is much greater concern here because the prevalence is increasing. In addition to that we found many patients with undetected diabetes or with impaired uh, fasting glycemia. And in terms of therapeutic control of diabetes, this was very poor indeed. Less than one in ten had achieved the glucose targets defined in the guidelines. So
0: it sounds like there are plenty of things to cause concern. In in terms of the the, the things that indicate lifestyle, what needs to be done about those?
4: Well, I think that for a patient who develops coronary disease, their lifestyle is often poor. They're smokers and they're overweight or obese and their dietary habits are not ideal and they're usually sedentary. And to help them make appropriate lifestyle changes, they need access to a comprehensive prevention and rehabilitation program. And such programs need to draw upon the uh, professional support of uh, nurses and dietitians and physiotherapists to help these patients make these lifestyle changes. And at the moment, we see from our third survey that less than a third of these patients have access to any form of structured preventative and rehabilitative care and that's something uh, that really needs to be addressed as a matter of urgency.
0: What do you think then is the key message coming out of this? Is it actually political?
4: Well there is a political message here because our patients and indeed ourselves as physicians are not immune to uh, the lifestyle changes which are taking place in the population at large and the epidemic of obesity in the population is also impacting upon our patients with coronary disease. And the the European Society of Cardiology has recently launched um, a European Heart Health Charter. It was launched at the Parliament in uh, Brussels in June of this year. And that calls upon politicians and policy makers to put in place appropriate legislation which will help the population at large to reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease.
0: That was David Wood. Four-year follow-up of Swedish registry data no longer indicates increased mortality associated with drug-eluting stents, as opposed to bare metal stents. Unlike patients who received drug-eluting stents earlier in the same study, those who received them more recently had similar risks of death or myocardial infarction as patients who received the bare metal stents. Nicholas Solomon spoke to Stefan James, who believes the improvements in drug-eluting stents may be associated with improved technique and stent size. He began by explaining the specific aims of the study.
5: The purpose of our study was to study the long-term efficacy and safety of dragoludin stents versus bare metal stents in real world. So we looked at patients that were treated in Sweden, all patients treated in Sweden, every single one, during the period of time from 2003 to 2005, three-year period of time. We included patients in this registry and followed them for, for four years at least one year of follow-up in all patients and up to four years of follow-up. The aim was then to see what happens during this four-year period of time regarding efficacy, the rate of dyspneosis, regarding safety, regarding stent thrombosis and the, the hard endpoint outcome, death and MI.
2: What were the hard endpoints? Were there increased risks from using DES or was it the same?
5: The primary endpoint that we pre-specified was the composite of death and MI, and over a four-year period of time, there was no significant difference between the two stent groups, the DS versus BMS. So, and, and this was similar as we have reported earlier. For the individual endpoints of myocardial infarction, or death alone, there was no significant difference at the end of follow-up. We have previously reported an increased mortality in patients receiving drug luna stents versus bare metal stents. But this increase has now diminished and is no longer statistically significant. Regarding the other secondary endpoints, we have reported an increased risk of stent thrombosis. These data are still preliminary, but we see in this registry over time and continuous 0.5% increased risk of stent thrombosis, an increased risk uh, that is continuous. So there's been a higher increase in using the drug-eluting stents than the bare metal stents. Why do you think this is? The problems with drug-eluting stents is that the re is is hindered, and that creates a possibility for the stents to create thrombus material so that can close the stents. So this risk is very little. This risk is only 1.5% per year but it still is a concern concern for us as physicians if this is increase continues over time so there's an increased risk but it, it luckily it doesn't translate into an increased risk of death and IMI over a four year period of time. And were there any limitations to your study? This is what I'm describing as a large scale retrospective registry study which cannot be compared to prospective randomized trials. We have several limitations to this type of retrospective evaluation mainly regarding selection of patient and bias because there may have been differences between the two groups that we have not been able to compensate for There may have been differences occurring over time that we even we're not aware of but on the other hand there are several strengths associated with this type of registry study it's say we describe a contemporary use of these stents in an overall population in one entire country all procedures are registered. We base results on a very large number of heart endpoints, almost more than 7,000 primary endpoint events, 4,000 myocardial and almost 3,000 deaths occur during this period of time uh, and it's an, very, it's an unselected population that we study. What
2: <coughs> does this mean for patients and physicians across the world?
5: For patients Particularly, I think the millions of patients who have drug gluten stents implanted, this is good news. Although there's a little increase, small increase risk of stent thrombosis, there's no increased risk of death or myocardial infarction in these patients. Also, for physicians, I think this is, this is good news, but also there's a concern because the benefit of the drug gluten stents are, are not as marked as we hoped from, from the beginning. There's a pretty moderate benefit of these stents, and there's a problem with late occurring stent thrombosis.
0: That was Stefan James of the Uppsala Clinic Research Center in Sweden. Now, his study was with 13,000 patients getting the drug eluting stent versus 21,000 having bare metal stents. Both varieties are now showing equivalence in survival, so Peter Goodwin asked Raymond Gibbons what he made of these data.
3: I think the Swedish data demonstrate that there's been a change in practice over time. Uh, As the speaker indicated, it's difficult to be certain whether that was a change in the use of antiplatelet therapy, a change in the selection of patients, or a change in the application of drug-eluting stents that resulted in an improvement in the outcomes over time in the patients uh, who received drug-eluting stents.
2: What do you make of the data in terms of how doctors should be viewing their candidates for stent placement right now?
3: I don't think that these observational data change uh, the message from last year, which is that dual antiplatelet therapy for at least one year, according to existing guidelines, remains critically important.
2: Does this suggest, though, that bare metal stents are going to be
3: as good for many patients? I think uh, the issue of the selection of the uh, stent for an individual patient must be carefully considered by the physician. There is no right or wrong answer uh, overall and these data show that that process is probably evolving in the country of Sweden as it is around the world.
2: There were issues about early risk and late risk which emerged between the two types of stents, weren't there?
3: Yes, uh, these data support the results of the randomized trials which showed that there is an early benefit of drug-eluting stents in preventing restenosis and early events related to restenosis. On the other hand, uh, these data and other data show that there is a late hazard associated with thrombosis, and the Swedish data suggests that in recent years those two balance off. And what should doctors be making of this then in everyday practice? I think doctors should continue to make careful decisions for individual patients about whether a drug-eluting stent is better or a bare metal stent is better and educate their patients about the critical importance of continuing to take dual antiplatelet therapy. If they're on the drug-eluting stent? Even if they have a bare metal stent, they should take both uh, both antiplatelet drugs for 90 days.
0: Raymond Gibbons there. And that's all for this news programme, coming from the ESC Congress in Vienna. We'll have
1: more tomorrow, so until then, it's goodbye.